0: Our great and gracious God, our merciful and mighty Savior, we are thankful to come into Your presence today to join with each other in giving You praise. May we glorify You. May we encourage one another. May we receive Your Word with believing and obedient hearts. May we feast in faith and joy at Your table. May we enthrone You on our praises. May we join with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven in crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, for the whole earth is full of Your glory. We thank You, Lord. We thank You for our salvation, which is Your gift from beginning to end. We thank You that the heavenly, most holy place is open to us. We thank You for Your Son, Jesus Christ, who is our salvation, who has opened up for us this new and living way into Your presence, whoever lives to make intercession for us, who is coming again for us at the last day to complete His work of redemption, and in whose name we pray to You, the living God. Amen. Oh, Father, we pray now that through the sword of the Spirit that is Your holy and infallible and inspired Scripture, that You would wage war against all sin, all idolatry, all greed, all lust, all pride, that our sins may be slain and that we may live righteously with You and walk after Jesus in the way of the cross. Oh, transform us today. Make us more like Christ Jesus. Fill us with love for You And love for one another. This is our prayer. Through Christ's name. Amen. The story before us this morning is known as the story of the rich young ruler. Uh, It's found in the first three Gospels in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And we put together uh, what all three of them tell us about this man. We find he was rich. We find he was young. And we find he was a ruler of some sort. He was powerful. Perhaps he was part of a royal family or had a high-ranking government job or uh, most likely he was a ruler in the synagogue. Whatever the case, this man had a lot going for him. He seemed to have everything, and yet he lacks something. Now, if ever there were a relevant story in the Gospels, I think this is it, of course. I think they're all relevant to us. But this one seems especially relevant. Uh, It's incredibly relevant. Rich young rulers who seem to have everything yet lack the most important thing dominate our culture. Think of Tom Brady, the New England Patriots quarterback. Not only does he have four Super Bowl rings, so he is a winner on the field, uh, he even beat the NFL in the Deflate Gate controversy. He scored a big victory off the field. Uh, he's been the NFL's MVP twice. Uh, he's got a supermodel wife. He's got more money than he could ever spend, not just from his uh, athletics, playing the game, but also from his endorsements. Uh, he's lived an incredibly full life. But a few years ago, he was giving an interview to 60 Minutes, And he said this. He said, why do I have three Super Bowl rings? I only had three at the time. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? There has to be more than this. Tom Brady is a rich, young ruler. He's a celebrity. He's a superstar. And yet he lacks something. Or what about Taylor Swift? Talk about another rich young ruler in our world. She started her music career at age fourteen and has now ruled the music world, you could say, for over a decade. She has won just about every award her industry has to offer. Uh, she plays regularly before sold out stadiums. She is so powerful that even Apple, even Apple had to change its music, music selling policies in response to her demands. She brings in about $50 million per year, and she's actually very philanthropic. She gives a great deal to dozens of charities. And yet you don't have to look very hard or listen very long to see that while this young woman has it all, she has money, she has fame, she has power, she's part of our elite celebrity ruling class, while she seems to have it all, one thing, she lacks. There's something missing. Or what about Mark Zuckerberg? Uh, You know, athletes and celebrities have their millions, but the founder of Facebook has his billions. His personal net worth is somewhere north of $40 billion. Uh, He launched Facebook from his dorm room while he was still a student uh, in college at Harvard. Uh, He was a billionaire by age 23. He's got incredible Clout and pull. In our culture, he's already had a a major movie made of his life. How many people get biopics made while they're still in their 20s? Uh, You could say he rules the internet, uh, certainly the way no one else does. And yet, Mark Zuckerberg is a self-described atheist. You don't have to look that hard at his life to see something is missing. He's a rich young ruler, but clearly, one thing, he lacks. But I want you to see, this passage here in Mark 10 doesn't just speak to young, wealthy celebrities. If you are an American, really, of any age, this passage speaks to you. Americans have access to more wealth and more power than any people group in history. Now, we may not all feel wealthy, you know, in this room here today, we may not all wealthy and that's because wealth and poverty are almost always measured in a relative way against those we are around. You know, wealth and poverty are judged in, in a relative kind of way. But if we step back from our culture and we look at things globally and historically by global and historical standards, we are all very wealthy. Even many, I won't say all certainly, but even many who are considered poor. In our country, live more comfortable lives than even kings did a couple centuries ago. We walk around with computers in our pockets. Uh, We have air conditioned houses. We have cars. We have TVs. Just to give you an idea of how wealthy and affluent we are, Uh, my family uh, has still got one of those old fashioned box TV sets, you know, the kind everybody had until just about 10 years ago, the kind that weighs about 400 pounds. And uh, we were trying to give it away. And so we called some different charities that we've done donations with before, and nobody will take a box TV set anymore. They only take flat screens. Right? If any of you want it, I'd be happy to give it to you. Uh, but you can't even give these things away now. I mean, ten years ago, this was the top-of-the-line model. Uh, but that, that shows you how powerful and affluent our society is. We are a very rich and comfortable land. Now, when it comes to a passage like this in Mark 10, uh, what, pe- what preachers typically do, and I include myself in this, I've, I've preached this story before, what preachers try to do is balance this out. Balance out this story with other passages in Scripture that deal with money and wealth. Here you have a man who has great possessions. He's told to give them all away. So sure, you've, you've got this one case where this man is told to give away all his wealth. But clearly, this is rather unique in the scriptures. This was a special situation. We preachers like to point out how there were special circumstances here. This has to do with the transitional age from Old Covenant to New Covenant. Uh, that, that has to do with the particular point Jesus is at in his earthly ministry where he's going to Jerusalem and everything's got to be left behind. So you can't stop and bury your father. You can't hang on to your possessions. You've got to give everything up, drop everything, and follow Jesus in the march towards Jerusalem. And besides that, it's really clear by the end of the story that this man had made an idol of his wealth, and that's why Jesus calls on him to give it all up as well. And so we preachers like to take a story like this and then we'll say something like this as a kind of slogan to sum it all up. God doesn't mind His people having stuff. He just doesn't want stuff. To have His people. What a nice, balanced preacher slogan, right? You've heard me use language like that before. Slogans like that before. And we throw a slogan like that out and we all breathe a sigh of relief and we think, okay, good. (laughs) This passage doesn't mean I have to change my lifestyle. I don't have to change my spending habits after all. If I nod at the right places in the sermon, I can go on with life as usual. Well, I'm sure that had the rich young ruler been given a slogan like that, God doesn't mind his people having stuff. He just doesn't want stuff to have his people. I'm sure he could have nodded in agreement as well. And then he could have gone his merry way thinking everything was fine. We can't do that with this passage. Not ever going to deal with it honestly. Uh, I do think we need to set it in the context of Scripture as a whole. And I do think we need to balance it with what the rest of Scripture Says, In fact, I will tell you, I think there are two mistakes we can make with this passage. One would be to treat the command given to this man as if it were universal when really it's not. One mistake with this passage would be to say, well, this must be the normal Christian life. The normal life of a Christian disciple must be one of voluntary and permanent poverty. And so when Jesus commands this man to go sell all and come follow me that's a command to all of us i would say no that's not true no more than the command given to noah to build the ark was universal we don't take that out of genesis and say oh we should all be working on an ark or the command god gave to abraham to go sacrifice his son in genesis 22 we know that's not a universal command that's unique and this command is unique too Basically, when Jesus tells this man to go sell everything and come follow me as I go to Jerusalem to die on the cross, he's really inviting this man to be the 13th apostle, to join that special group of insiders who are traveling with Jesus. The reality is most Christian disciples, most disciples of Jesus, did not give away all their goods even during Jesus' earthly ministry. Because most disciples didn't have that special call. They weren't part of this inner band, this inner circle. Indeed, if we look at Scripture as a whole, we find that there are many, many faithful believers in Scripture, many righteous believers in Scripture who are very affluent. Men like Job. And you could say, oh, well, Job lost it all. Well, yeah, but he got it all back and even more in the end. He was a very wealthy man. Or men like Abraham. Abraham had several hundred men at his command. He was a kind of mid-Eastern sheik. Very wealthy and affluent man and clearly also righteous. 1 Timothy 6, we read it this morning. 1 Timothy 6 speaks positively of the rich even in the context of the New Testament church. And while that passage certainly commands generosity to the rich, it does not assume that they will cease to be rich. We might say according to the Scriptures, the rich you will always have with you. There will always be rich people in the church. And there's nothing wrong with that. There was no requirement for the rich in the New Testament church to divest themselves of all their possessions. Wealth is a blessing from God and received with thanksgiving, received with gratitude and in faith, it can be a good thing. It it is truly a blessing. To assume that money is evil is actually Gnostic. You know, Gnosticism is the ancient heresy that denies the goodness of God's world, the goodness of what God has made. Stuff and money are good. They're part of God's good creation. So we don't want to make the mistake that some have made with this passage of universalizing a unique command. Or treating wealth as evil when it isn't. 1 Timothy 6 does not say money is the root of all evil. It says the love of money is the root of all evil. Money is good. Stuff is good. These are aspects of God's good creation. So one mistake to make with this passage would be to universalize a unique command. You cannot do that. But there's another mistake we can make. And I think this is the one we're more prone to make as modern Americans. It's the mistake of eviscerating this command of all its force. This command to go sell all and come follow me. I think this is the real danger for us. The summons to follow Jesus may not mean you have to take a vow of poverty. But it does mean something with regard to how you use your wealth. You can't be a follower of Jesus and that not deeply affect your pocketbook. It's going to deeply transform the way you use your wealth. Wealth is a blessing, but wealth can also become a trap. Wealth can be a blessing or a barrier. And one thing we find again and again in Scripture is that great wealth all too easily leads us to forget God in the midst of our prosperity. This is a great danger for God's people. It's very easy for us to do exactly what this man does with his riches because riches have the power to deceive. Really in a way that other sins do not. No one ever thinks they're being greedy. No one ever thinks to himself, wow, I'm really starting to love money too much. I think I've crossed the line. Maybe occasionally a Christian will find himself thinking that way, but it's rare. Very rare as a pastor, you know, I've had people confess all different kinds of sins through the years. Uh, you know, all, just across the whole spectrum. You know, every commandment seems broken except this one. I've never had anybody come and confess grief. Okay, that's very odd to me. I'm Not sure why. Uh, why that's the case? Jesus clearly says rich people are in grave danger. And when he describes the dangers of the rich, he's really talking about people like us. Wealthy Americans, our access to riches, our access to power. It is easy for our stuff, all the stuff that we have, to numb us to reality. To mask our deepest spiritual problem. Wealth is a clear and present Danger. It can actually be a spiritual liability. Riches are easy to idolize and we probably won't even know we're doing it. We probably won't even know we've been deceived by wealth in this way. This passage shows us that being a disciple of Jesus will change everything about your life, including the way you, you use your money. Think about all the great hymns we have that talk about money and letting money go. Not being ensnared by it. Think about uh, Martin Luther's hymn, A Mighty Fortress Is Our God, with that line. Let goods and kindred go this mortal life also. Just letting go of goods and even family and even life itself, if required. Or in Rise Again, You Lionhearted, we've got that line about the martyrs. Honor, gold, they laugh to scorn, quench desires within them burning, by no earthly passion torn. Why could the martyrs go die in the arena, in the arena's bloody sand for their faith, their loyalty to Christ? Because they were not ensnared by riches or by a love for honor. They could laugh at gold and they could laugh at honor because they had something better. And that's what this story points us to. True treasure. So I think really the best way for us to see this is for us to walk through this story and just tackle it a piece at a time and and to not get too far ahead of ourselves as we go to really let it develop. Uh, let's start with verse 17. Jesus is going on the way. Remember, that language of the way is loaded language in Mark's Gospel. It's the way of the Lord. It's the way of the cross. And as Jesus is on the way, he gets interrupted. This man runs up to him. He kneels before him. And he asks Jesus life's ultimate question. Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Now, what do we to say about this question? Don't worry about the fact that His question talks about doing. This is a perfectly good question. It's the same question the Philippian jailer asks in Acts 16. He asks Paul this question. What must I do to be saved? It's a perfectly good question. The fact that he talks about doing does not necessarily imply earning. It's not as if because he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life, that he's asking, what can I do to merit eternal life? He's asking a genuine question, and it's a good question. At this point in the story, there's no reason to fault the question. And not only is it a good question, but he's he's come to the right place to get the answer. This man hasn't gone to the Pharisees to ask them his question, nor is he doing with Jesus what the Pharisees do when they ask Jesus questions. The Pharisees have questions for Jesus too, but they're always trying to trap Jesus with their questions. That's not this man. He is a sincere seeker. And he's seeking literally the life of the coming age. He is pursuing kingdom life. Now, Jesus doesn't answer the question right away. He actually does question one aspect of the question. Uh, He questions the address the man uses. This man has said, good teacher. And Jesus says in response, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. The rich man probably thought of his uh, approach to Jesus. He thought, you know, this is going to be a conversation between one good man talking to another good man. I'm a good man talking to another good man, a good teacher. Jesus may be better than me. He may be further down the road of goodness, but we're on the same path of goodness. Jesus challenges that. Jesus says only God is good. In effect, Jesus is saying, look, if you call me good, you're really calling me God. You need to acknowledge that. And if you call me good, you should also be willing to admit that you're not good. But again, we don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. Let's just hint it at. Jesus then does address the man's core question, what must he do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus points him to the commandments. He lists several of the laws found in the second half of the Ten Words, or the Ten Commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud and honor your father and your mother. Commandments 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9 are listed here, plus another from Leviticus about defrauding, which is probably an application of the Eighth, and perhaps the ninth commandment. Every one of these commandments Jesus lists has to do with love for neighbor. Now, I don't know why Jesus gives them in the particular order that he does. That would be a fascinating question to investigate. Uh, But it's often pointed out how interesting it is that Jesus does not include the tenth commandment against coveting. In his list here, the 10th commandment is unique in a way. It's the only commandment that deals exclusively with inward desire. And so commentators on this passage will often point out that uh, Jesus is perhaps reserving the 10th commandment as his ace in the hole, so to speak, to bring out it just the right moment. Because this is really the man's hidden problem, his covetous his covetous desires. In fact, Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 3 that covetousness is idolatry. And by the end of the story, we find that this man is an idolater. He has idolized his riches without even knowing it. He's been deceived by his wealth. So he is in violation of the 10th commandment. But again, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Look at how the story unfolds. Let the story develop. How does this rich young man respond to Jesus' answer? He says, all these laws I have kept from my youth. Now again, here it would be easy to find fault with this man's answer, to criticize this answer, to say, look, surely you don't think you've kept all these commandments all the time from your childhood. But actually, if we put this in the context of the Scriptures as a whole, this is a pretty typical way of speaking to describe covenant faithfulness, not sinless perfection but to describe covenant faithfulness. Think about uh, the psalmist who often claims to be righteous or to have walked in God's commandments. It doesn't mean that he's sinless. It just means he's covenantally faithful. Or think about Luke chapter 1, verse 6 that describes John the Baptist's parents this way. It says they were blameless and righteous, walking in the way of all the commandments of the Lord. It doesn't mean that Uh, Elizabeth and Zechariah were sinless. It doesn't mean they were sinlessly perfect. It's just a a typical biblical and Jewish way of describing covenant faithfulness. To describe someone as obedient or righteous does not imply sinlessness. It can just imply covenant faithfulness. And so I don't think we should jump to the conclusion that this man is claiming to be sinlessly perfect. I think this is really just his way of saying, I've been generally obedient. I've I've been a a faithful Israelite, a faithful member of the covenant. I seek to obey God, and when I fail, I go to the temple and I offer the prescribed sacrifices to cover my sin. Uh, I think that's probably the best way to take his answer at this point. And then we're told, Jesus looked on this man and loved him. Here is a true son of Israel, a true covenant member, just the kind of person Jesus came to save. Jesus looks on him with love, with the eyes of compassion. And really what Jesus says next is the key to the whole school. Jesus says, one thing you lack. Go your way. Sell whatever you have. Give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven, and come take up your cross and follow me. Jesus commands the man to give away all his wealth. To sell his great wealth, to, to give away his great possessions, and then to give all that wealth away. And then to come follow Jesus as he marches towards Jerusalem and towards the cross, to take up his cross and follow. Yeah, put this in context. very interesting. Remember the immediately preceding passage is about children. Jesus says we must become like children to enter the kingdom. Well, how did children enter the world? They enter the world with nothing. And Jesus is saying to this man, you must become like a little child. You must give it all away. You must be just as impoverished as a child. Then you can enter the kingdom. Then you can enter the kingdom as a child. I think that first part of Jesus line there, so important. Jesus says one thing you lack. He says one thing you lack, and then he says to go give it all away. One thing you lack. How can this man make up for what he is lacking by giving everything away? Won't that increase his lack rather than remedy his lack? How can less be more? How can he compensate for his lack by giving away all that he has. How can giving away blessing lead to blessing? I think the real issue here is what does he lack? What is the one thing he is lacking? He's got everything. He's got riches. He's got righteousness according to the law. He's got rulership. He's got status and power and privilege. What does he lack? What is the one thing he lacks not matter what? It's a who. He lacks Jesus and this is why Jesus ends his series of instructions by saying come follow me he's saying give everything else away and then come and join yourself to me come and be with me come and unite yourself to me attach yourself to me I am what you lack is what Jesus is saying to this man See, don't be confused by this. What the man lacked was not a vow of poverty. What the man lacked was Jesus. The only reason this man's wealth is an issue is because his wealth stands between him and Jesus. He's got to get to Jesus and his wealth stands in the way. His wealth is a barrier that stands between him and Jesus. And so the only way he can get to Jesus is by giving his wealth away. He's so attached to his wealth, he cannot attach himself to Jesus. And so his wealth must go because his wealth has become an obstacle to following Jesus. But sadly, at this point in his life at least, he chooses wealth over Jesus. He goes his own way instead of following Jesus' way. Well, you can just imagine the guy, you know, hearing this answer from Jesus and then going away sad, jumping in his Ferrari and driving off to find a second opinion. You know, maybe somebody else has got an answer that will be more to my liking. He goes away sad. But that's not the end of the story. The conversation now turns to the disciples. After this man leaves, Jesus looks at the twelve, and he says something that is astonishing to them. He says how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples are amazed at this because of their assumptions because of their presuppositions about wealth. They have assumed that wealth is a surefire sign of God's favor. Oh sure, some non-rich people might be saved. There might be some middle class or poor people who make it into the kingdom. But surely the rich are going to be first in life. They're first in this life. Surely they'll be first in the age to come. They're first in this world. Surely they'll be first when the kingdom arrives. It's as though the disciples think, okay, in the case of those who are wealthy, God has already tipped his hand and God has already shown his favor for them. He's revealed his love for them and his favor for them by blessing them with earthly wealth. The disciples see this rich young man as a five star recruit, a can't miss prospect. And so they fully expect him to join the kingdom team. In fact, they're probably thinking, just imagine what we could do with this guy's wealth, even if he would just tithe what we could do with it. And to have a guy like this, a a, a celebrity, a young hotshot on our side, think think about what that would do for our cause. Think about the clout and the pull we'd have when we get to Jerusalem with this guy marching along with us. But Jesus has let this prospect, he looks so promising get away. And he's let this young man get away because Jesus rejects their line of reasoning. For Jesus' wealth is no sure sign of God's favor. And so Jesus says again, it is hard for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom. This is Jesus putting his finger right on the man's problem. He has been trusting in his riches. And then Jesus says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. This is a serious subject, but Jesus is not beyond using humor or being funny, even to the point of absurdity. He draws this absurd picture to show what he's talking about, to describe the situation. Jesus, We we don't get it because we read the Bible so seriously, but Jesus is always telling jokes. Uh, And here's one of them. If you just try to picture this, you can see how funny it would be. you got the largest object that they would have known trying to squeeze through the smallest hole they would have known. And Jesus says, that's what it's like trying to get a rich man into the kingdom. It's like trying to get this huge, stubborn, surly beast of a camel to go through a tiny little needle eye. The smallest of holes. And again, the disciples are amazed by this. And so, now they wonder aloud, who then can be saved? If the rich can't be saved, who can? If the people who have got these obvious manifestations of God's favor in their lives, if they can't be saved, then who can? And Jesus says, with man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Man can't do it, but God can. In other words, the rich man can be saved, but only by the omnipotent grace of God. God is an expert at getting camels through needle eyes. He can thread the needle with a camel by the power of His grace. It would be impossible, humanly speaking, but God makes it possible. And in fact, we need to go one step further here. The passage doesn't address this because it didn't square with the disciples' assumptions, but I need to say it because there are some people who think this way today. It is... Very difficult for a rich man to be saved. It's like squeezing a camel through the eye of a needle. But it's also very difficult for the poor to be saved. It too is like squeezing a camel through the eye of a needle. Because the rich are prone to certain idols, but the poor can be prone to certain idols as well. In fact, the poor person can be just as much in the grip of money idolatry as the rich. The rich might trust in his riches, riches he possesses, But the poor might be controlled by a desire for riches he doesn't have. And his covetousness can be just as much of an idol. Or a poor person could take pride in the fact that he's poor and think that he's righteous just because he's poor. See, really the point is this. It is impossible for anyone to be saved. It is impossible for anyone in any socioeconomic class to be saved. Unless God acts. Unless God acts to powerfully pry the idols out of our hearts and out of our hands and puts Christ in the place of those idols. That's the only way anyone can be saved. It is an omnipotent act of God's grace. Salvation is beyond the realm of human possibility. But with God, it is possible for any to be saved. Salvation is of the Lord. It is His work from beginning to end. And when He saves you, He does so by smashing your idols. He saves you from your idols. In fact, that's really a good way to frame what this passage means for us. We start to think about what does this passage mean for us today? Well, here's one way to get at it. If Jesus were to stand before you and to say to you, in order to enter My Kingdom, you must give up blank. Is there anything that you could fill in that blank with that you could not give up? That you would choose over Jesus that you just couldn't part with? That you couldn't give up for Jesus' sake? Could you let goods and kindred go? This mortal life also? In other words, is there anything in your life you're putting in a place only Jesus should occupy? Think about what David says in Psalm 139. At the end of that psalm, he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart, and see if there is any offensive way in me. It is worth it from time to time to ask God to inspect our hearts for any idols. Any offensive idols. What good things in your life are potential or actual idols? What else are you tempted to trust in? besides Jesus to bring you happiness or security or fulfillment or satisfaction? See, this story shows us it is not enough to come and kneel before Jesus. You have to follow Him. You have to walk in the way of the cross with Him. That's what life looks like on the other side of the needle eye. It's kingdom life. It's it's what a saved life looks like. A life of obedience to Jesus. And that really brings us back to the key question in this part of Mark's Gospel. In this section of Mark's Gospel, the key question again and again is this, what does it mean to follow Jesus? And here we see it means Jesus must be your first love, your first priority, your highest loyalty. Jesus must be your God. Your trust and your hope must be placed in Him. But I've got to say, too, the way this works out varies from person to person. It really does vary from disciple to disciple. Here's where we go back to what I started with, talking about how preachers like to balance this out. Yeah, we have to say this. Jesus deals with each one of us uniquely. Some disciples of Jesus really are called to give everything up and basically live in poverty or something close to it for the sake of the kingdom. Sometimes those who have a special calling to care for the poor fall in that category or missionaries can fall into that category. The twelve disciples were that way. Look at verse 28. Peter says, Lord, we have left all to follow You. What Jesus was asking the rich young ruler to do, the twelve have already done. They gave up everything. They dropped their jobs and left their families. They gave up goods and jobs and kin, families. To follow after Jesus. Some Christians are called to give up more than others. It's just the way it is. All Christians must be generous, all Christians must be sacrificial, but specifics vary. Again, even during Jesus' earthly ministry, most disciples didn't have to give up everything, they didn't have to give away all their possessions. You know, it's really the same with suffering. Some Christians are called to endure greater suffering than others. Some Christians are called to endure martyrdom. There are Christians in the Middle East right now who are being hunted down, not just so they can be killed, but so they can be tortured in the most painful way possible before being killed. They have to suffer excruciating pain. Now most Christians throughout history, most Christians in the world today are not going to suffer to that extreme. But there's no question, all Christians will suffer for their faith in some form or fashion. And if you never suffer for anything you believe in, if you never find yourself suffering for Jesus, you may need to ask yourself some hard questions. But look at what Jesus says here. What happens when we give things away for the kingdom? Or when we suffer for the kingdom? Peter says, we've left all to follow you. And what does Jesus do? Does He come over and pat Peter on the back and say, well... Yes, it is so sad you've had to give everything up. Poor Peter, poor twelve. And throw a little pity party for them. Does he endorse Peter's apparent moment of self-pity here? No, not at all. Jesus says, yeah, you've given everything up. And then Jesus goes on to make staggering promises of reward. He says, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive one hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus says, yeah, Peter, you've given everything away, but guess what? I've got a hundredfold return on your investment. A hundred-fold return on kingdom investment. Even the best hedge fund managers can't come close to that kind of return on investment, especially not these days. No one makes sacrifices for the kingdom and comes out a loser. No one who makes sacrifices for the kingdom comes out behind. Nobody who sacrifices for Jesus comes out a loser. You can't outgive God. No matter what you give away or what you suffer, God will more than compensate. So, yes, following Jesus does mean you will have to give things up. Yes, it does mean you will suffer. You will suffer persecution. But you won't lack for anything because you have that one. You have Jesus. And you can lack many things and yet lack nothing when you have Jesus. In fact, what Jesus says here is a lot like what we find in Psalm 34. In Psalm 34, the psalmist says, Those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. But then a few verses later, he says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous. And we want to say, well, which is it? Do the righteous really lack nothing? Or do they really have afflictions? And the answer is both. The righteous lack no good things. But among those good things God sends into their lives are afflictions. There is suffering. There is sacrifice. Those who seek the Lord and follow Him will have everything they need. And those who seek the Lord and follow Him will never be without tokens of God's love, even in the midst of the worst trials. Even when we lack, we don't lack. Even when we seem to have lost everything, we've still got the most important thing. Everything else we have can be taken away from us, but Jesus cannot. And if you have Jesus, you have everything. The call that goes out is always the same. Jesus says, follow me. But the precise shape that following takes, the precise form of suffering and the sacrifices we make, the, the trials we have to endure, that's unique to each one of us. Jesus has written a story, He's written a script for each one of us. There's this universal call, and then it has unique consequences in each one of our lives as disciples. What's it mean for us? I don't want to, you know. Um, passage like this is almost impossible to preach, but let me just put it this way. You know, the fact is the average Christian is average. (laughs) The ordinary Christian is, well, quite ordinary. But here's what I think this passage is showing us. Within those average ordinary lives that most of us will be called to live, we have extraordinary opportunities for service and sacrifice. Unique opportunities for service and sacrifice. There's suffering God will call you to go through that is utterly and uniquely your own. There are sacrifices you will be called to make for the sake of the kingdom that no one else can make. And even in the midst of of the most ordinary and average Christian life, there are these extraordinary opportunities for service and sacrifice if we will just look for them and be willing to seize them When they come along, What good is it to be monetarily rich if we remain spiritually bankrupt? Why be wealthy on earth if you're dirt poor in heaven? It's great to invest in stocks and bonds, but what do we invest in widows and orphans? And in mercy work and mission work? See, the issue in the end is not really your money. It's not as if God is short of cash. And he needs to finance his kingdom somehow. And so you've got these desperate passages, kind of like a you know a, a fundraising letter written in desperation. That's not what this is. The issue is what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That old line, follow the money. You know, it's true in culture, but it's true spiritually too. Where your money goes, your heart follows. Giving your money away is really a way of giving yourself away. Giving money away is really a way of giving your heart away. It's a way of showing and proving that mammon isn't your God. God is your God. Money isn't mammon for you. It's just money. And so it's expendable. The best way to humble mammon, this false god, this idle mammon, the best way to to humiliate the almighty dollar is to give dollars away in generous amounts and to know that such generosity leads to heavenly treasure. Jesus is not calling us away from treasure. He's calling us to true treasure. He's calling us towards the greatest treasure of all. He calls us to sacrifice, but sacrifice as a way of finding true satisfaction and fulfillment. See, in the end, this rich young ruler went away sad because he didn't really know who he was talking to. He thought this conversation, like I said, was a conversation between one good man and another good man. One good man and perhaps a better man, but still two men who are on the same path of goodness. In reality, this conversation takes place between a sinful idolater who is talking to a good God. The good God in human form, in human flesh. But you know, there's something else we can say about this. This story is also one rich young ruler talking to another rich young ruler. In fact, Jesus is the richest ruler of them all. Jesus has greater rule and greater riches than this man can even imagine. As the Son of God, He's been lavished with the riches of His Father's glory and honor from all eternity. But what did Jesus do With those riches. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul tells us that Jesus, though He was rich for our sakes, became poor in order to enrich us with His own treasure. Jesus had greater riches than we could ever imagine. But He gave those riches away and entered into the ultimate poverty. The ultimate poverty of death on the cross. The story of Jesus is really a riches to rags story. He was rich, but became poor in order to enrich us. So that we could live a rags to riches story. Jesus had life in himself, but he went to the cross and died so that we who were dead might have life. When Jesus tells this young man to give it all away, Jesus is really just asking the man to follow His own example. He's not asking this man to do anything He hasn't already done. Jesus is the ultimate rich young ruler. And He makes the ultimate sacrifice. And when you start to see it that way, I think it changes everything. See, if you lack Jesus, if you lack the one thing, it really doesn't matter what else you have. You lack the main thing. Your life is... Pointless. It all amounts to nothing. But if you have Jesus, you lack nothing. Whatever else you might lack, you lack nothing. You have the greatest treasure of all. And when Jesus is your greatest treasure, all your other treasures, you see, they're really just trinkets. And so sure, you can enjoy them with gratitude and in faith, but you also hold them loosely. And you're ready to part with them if need be. Because you know the King is yours and His kingdom is yours. You can be generous because you know that with God every loss is really a gain. You know that every act of mercy will be rewarded. You know that every good deed will be crowned with glory. That every sacrifice will be compensated. That every time you put earthly treasure to use for kingdom purposes. It is transformed into heavenly treasure. You know that every cross you bear will ultimately be transformed into resurrection glory. Oh yes, there will be sacrifices to make, persecutions to endure. Jesus says that. But you know all that suffering and sacrifice will lead you to a greater glory. The true riches of Christ and His eternal kingdom. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord Jesus, we do thank you for bringing us into your kingdom through your cross. We thank you that by dying for us, you showed us what true kingship, what true rulership is really all about. By becoming poor and suffering for us, you showed us where true riches are found. Oh, Lord Christ, may we follow you in the way of the cross and so receive our inheritance in your kingdom. Jesus, you are better than money. You are better than houses and family and friends and vacations. Nothing else can satisfy us the way You can. May our hearts seek You. May they find You. May they rest in You
1: now and forever. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, we give You praise and thanks for all Your goodness to us. We praise You for the gift of Your Son, our risen Savior, who has conquered death by His death and given us new life now and forevermore. We rejoice that Satan has been vanquished and that Jesus Christ is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Father, we pray for the church of Christ, that she might be in truth the new Jerusalem, prepared as a spotless bride for her Lord. Give to her true purity, that she might be without spot or wrinkle. Rid us of all error. Deliver us from evil and the attacks of the enemy. Keep our doctrine and worship pure. Heal our divisions. Strengthen our brothers and sisters throughout the world who have been displaced or are undergoing persecution for your name. Bless the congregation of your people in our own land. We especially call upon you to bless the CREC churches of the Athanasius Presbytery for Pastor Joe Thacker in St. Mark's Jeremy Sexton in Church of the Good Shepherd Eddie Field in Holy Trinity Reformed Church Rob Hadding in Christ Church of Pace, Florida Stephen Wedgworth in Christ Church in Lakeland Herman Gunter in the congregation at Covenant First Presbyterian Yuri Brito in Providence Church Ben Rosel in Trinity Presbyterian George Crocker in Salem Reformed Church Galen Story Christ Presbyterian, and J Barfield of Emmanuel Presbyterian. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, guide the nations of the world into the way of justice and truth, and establish among them that peace which is the fruit of righteousness, that they may become the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, for giving the nations to your Son as his inheritance. Subdue your enemies with the power of your Gospel. Build up your church in every land through the faithful ministry of word and sacrament, and cause the rulers of the earth to submit to the King of kings and Lord of lords, our Savior Jesus Christ. We especially pray for the work of the Slavic Reformation Society and those pastors who are uh, going into Central Asia to preach the Gospel in closed Muslim countries. Bless their labors. Bless the saints there that they have baptized. Protect them from those who would persecute them. And imprison them and give them success in ministering your word. Have mercy upon our magistrates and civic leaders in this land, especially President Obama, Vice President Biden, our Senators Shelby and Sessions, our Representatives Byrne, Roby, Rogers, Adderholt, Brooks, Palmer, and Sewell. Sanctify and sustain Governor Bentley. Give wisdom to our Supreme Court justices. Anoint all magistrates with the gifts of your Spirit to rule with justice, wisdom, and righteousness, so that your church may prosper in our land. Deliver us from the rule of ungodly men, and bring conviction of our sin, and grant us repentance. O Lord, bring an end to abortion, injustice, and everything that undermines biblical marriage. Save us from violence, discord, and confusion, from pride and arrogance, and from every evil way. Heavenly Father, You are the great shepherd and overseer of our souls, and we thank You for Your faithfulness to us. We thank You for hearing our prayers and sustaining us through difficult times. We pray that You would bless with Your tender mercies our family, friends, and those in our own congregation who are sick or afflicted. Be with Brenda Jordan's mom in the upcoming surgery that she'll have. Bless Lindsay Skogan and Wyatt Rickles, Mike Passerilla, Brad Steffler, Mary Jo Mosley's dad Sarah Claudia Michelle Stevenson Bethany Laughlin Ashley Hamblin Jared and Liz and their unborn child with a disorder and the Jennings family and their unborn child be with all battling cancer and bless all expectant mothers in our congregation that they would have safe and timely deliveries comfort all who are lonely and alone and comfort And give your peace to those who are grieving, loss, or tragedy. All these things, and whatever else you see that we need, grant us, O Father, for the sake of Jesus Christ, your Son, who died and rose again, and now lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, age after age. And now hear us as we pray together, as our Savior has taught us, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done